0: Hi, Justin Kelly here and welcome to the Scholars Podcast. This is a show where we feature scholars from the General Sir John Monash Foundation. The best, the brightest, the boldest, the bravest across all fields of academia, business, science, humanities and the arts. The John Monash Scholarships are postgraduate scholarships awarded to outstanding Australians with leadership potential who wish to study overseas The John Monash Scholarships are amongst the most important postgraduate scholarships currently available in Australia. On today's episode of The Scholars, we talk with Dr. Sam Wills, an economist and hedge fund trader currently living in London. Sam talks about the economic earthquake of COVID-19 and how long it might take the economies of the world to recover. He also takes us through his early years of study, including going to school in Nauru, his life advice for school leavers, and the economics behind finding the perfect surf break. Stay tuned for the unmissable Dr. Sam Wills. Dr. Sam Wills, welcome to the program. Hi, Justin. Thanks. uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You're joining us today from London and we're in the midst of a global health lockdown. Tell me, what's life like in the UK at the moment?
1: Um, well, I guess like everywhere, we've uh, we've been locked down for a couple of months now. Uh, the UK, unfortunately, was a little bit slow in getting its act together uh, in in imposing a lockdown, uh, which means that we are still uh, locked down, whereas many other countries are, are leaving, like Australia. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, we can be thankful that the, the health system hasn't been too overrun here. Um, they've got, they've quickly built quite a lot of extra capacity, which is good. Uh, people seem to have been paying attention to the lockdown laws. So, uh, particularly London, uh, I think the, the case count has dropped quite, quite a lot. And I guess on a personal sense, it's, um, it's been nice to spend a bit more time with, uh, at, at home. My, my partner and I, we moved into a new flat just before the lockdown happened. And so it's been a, Good chance for us to to chill out and get used to the new uh, the new place.
0: Have you actually been able to to go outside, or have you physically been uh, locked down in your in your home?
1: Um, well, for a couple of uh, for a couple of months there, we were basically not leaving the house except to go shopping. Um, but more recently, they've sort of relaxed the restrictions a little bit, uh, and so we've been going out, and doing a bit of cycling, uh, getting a bit of sunshine. It's it's a beautiful time of year this in Mother. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's hard to stay stay locked down
0: while the sun's shining. But yeah, it's it's been getting better. It's been getting better. Well, the British PM nearly died from COVID nineteen. How was that? Waking up and finding out that Boris Johnson was actually in intensive care and it was it was touch and go.
1: Yeah, I mean, it brought it all pretty <laughs> it brought it all home how serious the the whole problem is. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to think that uh, that 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 could happen. I guess, yeah, we're all pretty glad that he um, he recovered because that meant that we could then start saying exactly what we thought about him uh, again while he was ill. Everyone was <laughs> everyone was really hoping he'd get better and you know worried about his health. But um, when he got better again, we could start speaking our mind, which. Uh,
0: which is good. So do you get a sense, though, that the UK more broadly is slowly returning to normal, or is it still very much a case of you are locked down, don't move, um, only really go out as necessary?
1: No, it's slowly slowly getting better. I mean, people are out in the parks. London's great, and there are just so many parks. Oh, that's good, yeah. And, yeah, people are getting back out in the parks, you know, meeting with one other person from outside their household. Uh, So it's it's... It's a bit better than it was. It's still very different to normal, of course, Um, and my impression is that it's going to be like this for
0: for months. Uh, So it's it's really a yeah unprecedented situation. So you're an economist uh, by training. What is your take then on how long that you think the economies of the world will take to rebound after this COVID nineteen scare?
1: the depth of this shock is is unprecedented in, in modern history. Uh, and I'm sure that you and the listeners have seen the recent unemployment data, which uh, has just spiked. Uh, and, you know, it's it, it looks like the depth of the, the downturn will be deeper than the fi- global financial crisis, uh, than the 2001 recession, um, basically anything post-World War II. But what's interesting is, how quick the bounce back is going to be. Uh, because typically in a recession, uh, what we talk about is ba- uh, sort of negative animal spirits where a bit of a funk descends on the economy and people just aren't willing to go out and take a risk. Uh, they aren't willing to go out and sort of buy a new machine thinking that there'll be sort of more demand down the line and they'll be able to pay off the loan. Uh, and so People just sort of stop being optimistic and, and uh, investing in the future, and that then becomes self-fulfilling, because you know if you don't if you don't buy a new uh, sort of machine for your factory, the guy who's selling the machine doesn't have an income, and he doesn't go get a haircut, and you know it, it cycles around the economy like that. That's how a typical recession works, but with, with something like this, there is a chance that on the day that they say, "Look, a vaccine is is made," uh, and you can go back to work. Uh, everyone can go back to work and and there's nothing to worry about there is a there is a chance that everyone's kind of you, you have a wave of optimism uh, a wave of positive animal spirits where people just can't wait to get back out into the into the economy and start going about their lives again um, because it could be kind of coordinated across the whole country all at once so there there is a chance that the this is different to other sorts of recessions because of the um, the way that people will be Sort of responding as as the economy gets back into action. So we really don't know, but there is a there is a chance that it, it could be terrible. But also, there's a, a chance that we could, if we all pull together, um, get back to normal pretty quickly.
0: To that point, you only have to look at the Dow Jones last week, where I think it surged um, 900 points in a day off the back of news that there were positive results from one of the big pharma companies on the the hunt for a vaccine. And that was just um, the whiff of optimism and it, it set the markets soaring. So I, I think you're right. Everyone everyone globally is looking for that that first sign of good news that a vaccine is close.
1: And the other good thing, uh, and I guess this is particularly relevant for the equity markets, is that there's just been a lot of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus all around the world. So, you know, interest rates are... As, low as they've ever been. Um, The governments have been spending vast amounts of money, which is exactly what they should be doing in times like this, uh, keeping people connected to their jobs uh, and then quantitative easing as well as uh, sort of further props up equity markets. So all of this means that, you know, if there is this wave of optimism, then we might be able to get back to work uh, quicker than we would have otherwise. But as I say, it's it's very unknown. There is uh, you, you've got to be prepared for a, a pretty long, hard slog because it, it, typically it does take quite a while for for labour markets to recover from a from a massive shock
0: like this. So, as a as a student of economics, no doubt you would have studied all of the various theories going back um, hundreds of years on how to react to. Um, whether it's a war or a depression, uh, a market changing event. How then have you seen, it'd be fascinating, I imagine, you seeing this playing out, knowing that the levers that, um, that government can can pull to try to react to something like this.
1: That's us you, know, you, you can see the evidence of it, that each, you know, they say that, um, uh, that seismologists get better in two ways, better models and more earthquakes. And it's kind of the same with economics. Uh, this is an economic earthquake, and we've learned from the previous economic earthquakes, uh, and we seem to be getting better at at the way that we manage them. the The fiscal response around the world was really quick this time around. Uh, the The speed with which governments re- responded is is something to be um, pretty thankful for, because it will make the size of this recession less deep than it would have other- otherwise. And the things that they're doing have built on sort of, as you say, uh, centuries of, of learning. So we know that, uh, the fiscal stimulus works in times like this. You, you pick up, uh, aggregate demand when the private sector is, uh, is, is not willing to spend. What they're doing in keeping people connected to their jobs is, makes a lot of sense because once you start breaking these economic connections, it's very hard to get them back. And then also monetary policy, monetary policy is, Typically, the the primary lever that you use to manage the business cycle. Um, they've done as much as they as they can in in this regard, and then they're also experimenting with new tools, uh, which we'll we'll learn from and and get more information about for for the future. Things like um, directly lending to banks, um, buying up government debt through quantitative easing, um, directly controlling the yield curve, which is what the RBA is doing at the moment. Uh, these are um, yeah all. Make a lot of sense in theory, and so we're, we're getting to learn how they work in practice. And I mean, it'll mean that the uh, uh, the economics professional have have more sort of evidence to draw on when when we face the next shot.
0: Is there such a thing as having a favorite economist? And if so, do you have one?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's it's hard to call out uh, one favorite economist. Uh, obviously, Keynes made. Uh, Basically invented modern macro, and so it's hard to to go past him. Um, but the the profession moves forward with you know a lot of contributions uh, from a lot of people, and I think it's uh, it's really a, a collective body of knowledge that we're we're drawing on rather than any one superstar. And I think that's probably the best way to think
0: about it. Well, let's let's wind the clock back. You're, you're 35 now, but tell me about your background. I'd like to know where you went to school and where you grew up.
1: Yeah, sure. So I. Grew up in a little town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales called Hawksnest uh, and had a couple of fantastic schools at Tea Gardens Primary and Merriwether High in Newcastle. But I started out schooling uh, in a little place called Nauru, which is a Pacific island uh, right by the equator and I guess it's a place that many of your listeners will be familiar with uh, for one of a couple of reasons. Uh, one was that it used to be the richest country in the world because it Is basically an island made out of phosphate or fossilised bird droppings. (laughs) Uh, And the other is that because they were the richest country in the world, uh, unfortunately, they they mismanaged a lot of their wealth. They became very poor as a result. And to sort of bail them out, Australia gave them a lot of aid with a quid pro quo that Nauru set up some detention centres for asylum seekers coming to Australia. And that's, I guess... The unfortunate context in which a lot of your listeners will have heard of Nauru. Very it? controversial. Yeah. Yes. Mm. But it was a, it was a beautiful little place. Um, as I say, it's, it's, a, it was essentially a little tropical paradise at the time. Uh, but you could see that there was some interesting stuff going on in Nauru even then. So my dad was over there as a school teacher. Uh, he was sort of sent over as a bit of an out- outreach from the Australian uh, Department of Education. And for two years we lived there and you could see the effects of the phosphate even then. So the center of the island was being mined out and it was essentially being turned into a donut with the, 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 the center of kind of uninhabitable turning into a bit of a moonscape <laughs> with these phosphate pinnacles, uh, baking in the, in the equatorial sun. But the side effect of that was that the, uh, the Nauruan police chief at the time used to drive around in a yellow Lamborghini. And the Nauruans are big, big guys, right? And the police chief was one of the biggest on the island. Yeah. And he was so big that he couldn't fit behind the, the, the steering wheel of this Lamborghini. And so he'd sit in the passenger seat while his, his deputy drove him around. And bear in mind that Nauru is a tropical island, right? So there's one road. It's a circle. Yeah. It's about 20 kilometers long and there's not too far that the bad guys can go. So <laughs> they all know each other. So the, the, the yellow Lamborghini was not really needed, but that's a bit of an example of, you know, how unfortunately Nauru's uh, resource wealth was mismanaged. And it was the kind of, it was the experience of Nauru and wanting that experience of mismanaging their resource wealth not to be followed by places like Australia that I ended up, uh, choosing a research topic that I did during my PhD, which was basically looking into how countries, well, it was basically looking into how countries should manage their natural resource wealth. There's this idea of a, a resource purse, which is that uh, in some countries, if you discover oil or gold or other natural resources, it can be a great thing, but in many cases, you turn out to be worse off than you were to begin with. Uh, and that can be for a, a few reasons. It can sort of drive up the exchange rate, um, squeezing out your manufacturing sector, and, and the manufacturing sector in a country can be a, a really important thing because it's the sort of thing that, um, draws in, you know, educate or rewards an educated workforce, um, creates innovation, uh, all these other sort of benefits. And that kind of gets lost in resource rich countries. And then, of course, there's also the problems of, of corruption, uh, and, and graft. And, you know, there's a lot of money laying around from, from oil wealth. Uh, it's very easy for governments to get away with bad policies because they can afford to more or less pay off their, um, pay off their constituents to, sort of keep them happy
0: while while the graph goes on yeah i'm going to presume when you're in school you're a pretty good student what what would your teachers say about you
1: <laughs> um, yeah i was a good student uh, i probably misbehaved a bit too much uh you know as a as a as a teenager um but i think uh at the end of the day uh, with a, sort of a a good word from a couple of teachers that I really respected uh, towards the middle of high school who tapped me on the shoulder and said that I should uh, knuckle down and and make the most of the the opportunity. Uh, Yeah, school ended up turning out pretty well.
0: So what would your advice be to, say, students who are in Year 12, we were talking off air that my daughter's in Year 12, uh, in their final year at at school about... Um, how to set up their lives or to to plan for the future? What's your advice?
1: It's a good question. It's very hard to plan for the future, I think. Uh, It's really hard to know what's going to happen in a few years' time. So it's important to stay flexible uh, and to be able to respond to opportunities as they come up. Uh, And so the best way to do that is to sit down and think about what you really like doing, what you're good at and what you can do that makes a contribution to society because if you can find something at the confluence of those things, then that's a fantastic foundation for a career uh, and so long as you've got those sort of deep value questions correct, then it means that you can be flexible to respond to opportunities as they come up. I think that's that's probably a good way of going about it.
0: So what was your first degree and what was it that interested you in that particular field?
1: So at school, so my first degree was in actuarial science at UNSW, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, The reason why I did it was because at school I enjoyed both humanities uh, and English and ancient history and those sort of things, as well as maths and physics and the more quantitative subjects. And I thought to myself, it's possible to maintain an enjoyment of the humanities without a university degree, your reading and just sort of um, general sort of inquiry. It's a lot harder to do that with, with quantitative subjects, STEM subjects. And so I decided to go down the STEM route. I'm very glad that I did. Uh, and then from there it was a question of uh, basically I wanted to challenge myself and so I, I looked to find what the hardest subject I could in that sort of area. And it turned out that actuarial studies was up there, so um, so that's what I, I basically went for. And it also it was the sort of stuff that I sat, found interesting as well. Um, I was interested in business, I was interested in um, probability and and sort of analyzing data and those sort of questions. And it seemed like actuarial studies was a great fit, so so that's what I ended up doing. And uh, I think I was right on a couple of accounts. Um, it was bloody hard. <laughs> But it also uh, was was great, and I think it, it gave me a great foundation uh, and a flexible foundation um, to sort of then build a career on afterwards.
0: Now, I've got a note here saying you recently did a research paper on stratified periodic testing. What on earth is that?
1: Uh, yeah, so this was, this was interesting. It was the fastest paper that I'd ever written, um, and it came out of a, a bit of a conversation with a co-author of mine at Oxford, and we were – Meant to be working on something else, and uh, we just got chatting to a uh, about a, a podcast that uh, another professor had given um, the previous week, uh, where he was laying out a proposal for how to get us all out of this lockdown. Uh, and so this this speaker, uh, Paul Romer, who is a Nobel Prize winner in economics, he proposed that we should be testing seven percent of the population every day. Uh, Isolating the people who we find out are infected uh, and then letting everyone else go about their business. And that should mean that, you know, the virus doesn't spread too quickly. Uh, it means that, you know, we could go about and, you know, have the economy back on its feet without, um, without sort of having too much of a negative health effect. But we thought about it and we're like, it just, those numbers don't really add up. And so we did a bit of a few back of the envelope calculations. We realized that you can't do this. It'd end up being about 20% of the population. Um, if you were to, to do this testing strategy, which we called universal random testing, because you're just basically testing the whole entire universe of the, the people in the country at random. Uh, and so that, that proposal can't work. And so we thought, okay, what's a better way of going about doing this? And, you know, given there's a limited number of tests that you can use, uh, we thought that the best way to allocate these tests is to divide the country up into groups and think about which groups are, first of all, most exposed to the virus, and so we are most likely to catch an infected person, Mm -hmm. and which groups are then sort of uh, had the biggest cost if you uh, take them out of work and, and leave them at home. And so it means that groups like NHS workers uh well healthcare workers, doctors, nurses uh, are both very likely to get infected uh and also extremely important to have them at work and so you test them very frequently, you know, perhaps every day. Uh and then other groups you might uh test a little bit less frequently um and you know have those who can work from home working from home. So we basically tried to come up with a, a testing strategy that makes the, the most of a finite set of resources that you have available while getting the economy back to work uh, as much as possible. Um, And so we're able to sort of put that together. We've sent it off to a few policymakers in the UK and Australia, and we're hoping they might pick it up and and use it in in designing the way forward.
0: Because at the moment, they're just saying everyone who thinks they need a test, go and get tested, even if you've got minor symptoms. There doesn't appear to be any deep strategy behind it. Just get tested.
1: Mm. Yeah, so there are benefits to that in Australia because you have – um not too many cases there at the moment but it does leave open the possibility that there are asymptomatic characters um, asymptomatic carriers walking around who have the virus but don't know it and so mm. you kind of need uh, some sort of prompt to go to them and test them to make sure that you know they're not walking around and infecting people without being ill themselves uh, and so that was the whole idea behind this stratified periodic testing if you're working in a job that exposes you to a lot of other people, perhaps you're a bus driver, uh, a delivery driver, uh, school teacher or a nurse, you should be getting tested more frequently than just whenever you feel sick.
0: I'm very interested in another research paper that you worked on regarding the influence of a good quality surf break and its impact on an economy. Please tell me more.
1: So this was great fun. I loved this paper. It was uh, yeah, one of the most fun that I uh, had writing. Uh, I wrote it with a colleague of mine, Tom McGregor at Oxford. And basically it came about because after I finished my PhD, I was completely burned out, knackered. And I was, it was going into November in the UK. I wanted to get out, get a bit of sunshine and, and get a bit of surf. And so I jumped on a flight down to Morocco, uh, where they've got some fantastic waves uh, down in the south. And as we were flying in, uh, it was kind of dusk. We are flying in over the desert. It was completely dark, uh, except for this one spot of light that was lit up like a Christmas tree. And I looked at it and I'm like, that has to be the place where we're going. Uh, and it just made me wonder, like, why are there so many lights here rather than anywhere else? Like, the only reason you go to this place is because it's got a great surf break. There's nothing else around. It's on the desert. And so it got me thinking that maybe these surf breaks... Do something maybe you know the um the old hippies who who traveled around morocco back in the 60s and 70s settled in this place found something they liked and they kind of created a bit of a tour in- tourist industry around them and it's meant that people can come uh and and visit whether you're a surfer or not uh, to make the most of the um the sort of the tourist infrastructure that's been built there and so the way we went about testing this is we got hold of a bunch of satellite data, which covers the whole world at one square kilometre, one square kilometre resolution. And we did just that. We, we measured whether or not areas near good surf breaks have more light than areas that don't have a good surf break. Uh, and in this is an interesting study because it makes use of um, what we call in economics a natural experiment. So basically the quality of a surf break is determined by all the stuff that's going on underneath the ocean, the sort of the rock structures and the, the shore formation, and all that other sort of stuff. And so it's basically pretty randomly distributed up and down the coast. And it doesn't really have much to do with what what is going on on the economy on the land. And so if it turns out that there's some relationship between these the quality of these surf breaks, which we measure using some online um like an online Wikipedia of surfing. If there's some relationship between the quality of the surf breaks and the economy, you can be pretty sure that it is a bit of a causal relation, uh, as opposed to just something random. Because the fact is that these, these surf breaks have, in a sense, been randomly allocated uh, up and down the coast, and that's exactly what we find. We find we found that there was uh, a, a strong relationship between the quality of surf breaks uh, and the economic activity. We found that it it improved. Uh, during periods when there were big swells uh, which we measured using uh, the El nino patterns uh, in the pacific and uh, and and so it kind of the the broader punchline was that the natural environment and natural amenities in particular can matter for economic economic growth and this was a different result to or um, well, in addition to the literature because previously people had thought that the only way that the environment really contributes to the economy is through things like, you know, having fertile agricultural land, which you can directly exploit, or uh, having a river, which means it's easier to trade. With a surf break, the only contribution is that it's just a nice place to live, and so we're able to measure the niceness of the the place, and we're able to find that, you know, being a nice place to live actually does attract people and give rise to uh, more economic activity, which is proxied by lights.
0: I love it. So the next, the next time I go to Byron Bay, I can thank you for that.
1: <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Byron Bay is a perfect example, I reckon.
0: So last question. What's your advice to people who are thinking they've got a degree, but they're thinking of studying again, perhaps a second or even a, a third degree? Do they do it or do they just get on with, with doing their job?
1: I I think it's a fantastic opportunity if you can make it work. It's um. It was, yeah, a life changing experience for me. Uh, it was wonderful being able to study abroad, uh, and getting exposed to, you know, different cultures, both, both the culture of the UK, but also the cultures of all the different people I was studying with. Uh, having those years early in your career to sit back and think, uh, about deeper questions that you probably don't have the time or the space to think about while you're, while you're busy at work is really valuable. And again, it, it means that you can be, uh, build up sort of adaptable skills that are meaning you can be flexible in the future. And so I think for all these reasons, graduate studies are a wonderful thing to do if you can um, find a way to make it work. Uh, it's a great privilege, of course, but if you can if you can figure out uh, a way to, to to find yourself doing it, then I'd absolutely encourage it.
0: Dr. Sam Wills, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Justin. It's been uh, been a lot of fun.